If you have your Bibles with you, could you turn to Genesis chapter 2? If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your inside of your bulletin. Genesis chapter 2, from the beginning. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, heaven and the, uh, the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds up through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth is the river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and to all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then, the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Our next reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, starting at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's our fourth week in Genesis, and we've finally made it to chapter two. You'll be glad to know. Let's pray that God will give us understanding of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that we can sit together as your people and listen to you. Lord, we pray that you might be the one who teaches us this morning, that you might be the one who opens our hearts and opens our minds. And we pray, Lord, that we might be the ones who respond as your children ought to, to all that you have to say to us. Amen. An American investment banker was on the pier of a a beautiful coastal village in Mexico uh, when a a fisherman pulled in with several large yellowfin tuna in his boat. And the American asked, how long did it take you to catch them? And the fisherman said, oh, not long. And the American said, well, what do you do with the rest of your time? And the fisherman said, oh, well, I, I sleep late, I fish a little, I play with my kids, I take a siesta with my wife, I play guitar with my friends, I have a, a full and rich life. And the American said, oh, I can help you, I can help you. I'm an investment banker, I have an MBA from Harvard, I can teach you what to do. What you need to do is you need to fish a little longer and catch some more fish. And then with the, the proceeds from your bigger catch, uh, you can go out and you can buy another boat and then eventually you can have a whole fleet of boats. And then once you're, you're raking in all these fish, then you can actually, you can sell not to the middleman anymore, but directly to the processor. And eventually you can open your own cannery, you can control the product and the, the processing and the distribution, and you could get out of this village You could move to Mexico City and eventually to New York City and run your expanding empire. And then when the time is right, in 20 years' time, you could sell your whole company uh, to the stock to the public and you could become rich. You'd make millions. Uh, Millions, thought the little Mexican fisherman, suddenly interested. But then what would I do? And the American said, well, that's the best part. Then you could retire. And you could move to a little village in Mexico where you could fish a little and sleep late and and play... Anyway, you get the idea. (laughs) Now, why am I telling a joke about work to begin with? 
Well, it's well, partly because I just wanted to get a laugh out of you, but actually it's because one of the things that we see in this part of the book of Genesis, one of the big things that it's about is actually work. Uh, one of the, the big themes here early on is work. And so really what I want to talk to you about today is I want to give you three foundational truths about work that actually come out of the book of Genesis. Uh, so really, uh, you know, the book of Genesis, it's in the foreground, but really the theme that we're thinking about today is work, uh, whereas t- next week when we come together, we'll see one of the other big themes in these early chapters of Genesis, we'll see marriage. But today about work, I want to talk to you about three things. Firstly, that God is a worker. Secondly, that we are workers. And then lastly, that we aren't only workers. Uh, and it's all there in the outline that you got as you came in, uh, and it will be helpful to keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2. But firstly then, God is a worker. Have a look again at what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Because three times we are told in those verses that what God had been doing in the creation of our universe was work. That when God says, let there be light, he was working. That when God made the sky and the sea, he was working. The God that we meet in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is a God who works. He is a creative artist, he's a cosmic gardener, he's a divine craftsman, and he's even a poet who chronicles his work. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 won't allow us to see work as demeaning in any way. God dignifies work by revealing himself to be a worker. And that he is a worker is something that will continue throughout all the rest of the scriptures. All of God's great acts not just creation, but all of his great acts, revelation, judgment, salvation, sanctification, glorification, everything that God does is somewhere described in the scriptures as a work of God. But before, uh, but actually the, the work that you see God bringing dignity to here in Genesis chapter 2 is work of the most mundane and ordinary kinds, gardening. Because in Genesis chapter 2, God is a gardener. Uh, In verse 7, God makes the man out of the dust of the ground. In verse 8, God plants and tends to a garden. Uh, Here is God, hands in the dirt, uh, getting messy, getting dirty. God bringing dignity to even the most mundane, even the most ordinary physical sorts of jobs. And straight away, I think this puts us at odds with our world's. Uh, normally, in our, in our world, we have a bit of a hierarchy, don't we, as to, to what jobs we hold are more important or, or more valuable than others. And down at the very bottom, we put the manual, unskilled labourer. Uh, right up the top are the important jobs. Right up the top are the doctors and the lawyers, uh, those with, with lots of skills. Uh, in fact, uh, I used to run a Christian group at the top, top academic high school in New South Wales at James Roos. And there was an article in the paper about one of my leaders who'd got the top marks in the year 12 exams that year. Uh, And the question wasn't, you know, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do with your life? The question was, where are you going to study medicine? Uh, You know, that was just assumed. It was just assumed that she would take her place at the top of the hierarchy. Uh, And like a good Chinese girl, yes, she did go off to study medicine. That's exactly what she did. Uh, But what her parents don't realise, so, you know, don't don't spread this around, you know. Uh, what her parents don't realise is that she wants to be a medical missionary like Jill. Uh, but we still know there's a hierarchy, don't we, in our minds. Uh, and we even formalise that hierarchy by how much we pay people. 
And yet here is God right at the beginning doing something right down the bottom. Here is God giving dignity and meaning and value to even the most mundane, dirty, physical sorts of jobs. And that is a message that's very different from the message that we get from our worlds. But there is an important lesson here. God is a worker. And there is something significant and good and right about work and something good and significant and right about all work, even the most ordinary kinds. But secondly then, it's also clear that we are workers in these early chapters of Genesis. Uh, This comes as no surprise. We are the ones who are made to bear God's image to the world. And if he is a worker, then so too we are workers. Uh, There is a little shift that goes on in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. Genesis chapter 2 gives us almost a second account of creation. Uh, And I won't lie, there are some differences between the account in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But I think the real difference is one of perspective. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 gives us the the God-level view of all that God has made of of the whole creation. Whereas Genesis chapter 2, now we're we're down on earth. Now we're getting the human-level perspective on our world and on what God has made. And from this perspective, it's very clear that creation needs workers. That creation demands a, a huge workforce. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 5, plants have not grown because there has been no rain and because there is no one to work the ground. And so God creates the first man in verse 7 from the dust of the earth. He breathes the breath of life into him so that he could be a worker. And this man we know from Genesis chapter 1 is made in God's image. His destiny is to rule over all creation, to fill it and to subdue it to do the work of all humanity, to make this world fit and good for human beings to live and to flourish and to grow, to fulfill the creation mandate of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And yet there is an obstacle. Straight away there is an obstacle. The job is just too big. He can't do it on his own. Creation is is a wilderness. It's a wild frontier. Nothing will grow. And so God gets him started. In verse 8, God plants a garden in Eden, a beautifully manicured paradise of pleasing and fruitful trees, including the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's the source of, of these four life-giving rivers. The, the land is good. Everything kind of comes out of this garden. And then in verse 15, God puts the man in this garden paradise and he asks him to work the garden. He says, okay, I've got you started, now you finish, now you, you do the rest, now it's your turn. Take over and fill the earth and subdue it. Clear it, till it, grow it, rule over it in my name. And so the man works like God. God planted the garden, but in verse 15 now, the man will continue to grow the garden. God named things back in chapter 1. In verse 18, uh, sorry, in verse 19, God names, so the man names the animals. Uh, But it's in verse 18 that we discover the second obstacle to this kind of work of humanity. And that is, it's still too big a job. Uh, God got him started by planting Eden, but Adam's still alone. Adam's still on his own. And so God seeks a helper for him. 
And that word helper is a, a very deliberate choice that's made by God. Uh, when God creates the woman, he doesn't create just a companion, not just someone to come home to at the end of the work day to debrief with and to rest with. No, God makes someone who can join with Adam in his work. The creation of woman finds its fulfillment in cooperation with the man. Eve enters the world and joins Adam in his work. God's design is clear. Human beings are designed to work. But they're also designed to work in partnership with others, for the good of others. And these first humans, they understood that. They understood that their work, that our work as human beings was was a reflection and even a continuation of God's work of creation. We were made to rule like God as his representatives. We are, as I said last week, we're the middle management of creation. God's governor generals on earth. And therefore, we submit ourselves to God's rules, uh, particularly the rule about which trees we, we can and can't eat from, but particularly that we do as he asks, that we do this work that he has given us to do. We work like God, for we were made in the image of God. We are workers. Now, I think that the work that Adam is given is actually a great way of understanding all work. Uh, Gardening is is a great paradigm for all of work. Because what does a gardener actually do? Uh, Well, a a gardener is destructive. He he breaks things down. He he pulls things apart. Uh, But then they rearrange them. Then they they reshape them. They reorder them. They're they're creative until all of a garden's potential is brought out. Until it's good for human beings. Until it it fulfills all of its purposes in in providing food, in in providing beauty, in providing whatever it is that we need as human beings. And I think that all work is like that. I think that all work is is rearranging the raw materials of our world uh, for the prosperity and for the good of all humanity. God provides the raw materials. God even provides the skills and the talents. And we work to creatively rearrange them to make this world good for us. Uh, And all work is like this when you kind of think about it. Uh, What is music if it's not sound rearranged into song? What is architecture if it's not stone and dirt rearranged into a home? What is writing if it's not words rearranged into a story? What is science if it's not data rearranged into understanding? What is accounting if it's not numbers rearranged into whatever the client wants the numbers to be rearranged into? And what is engineering? Actually, you get off this week because I couldn't think of a joke for engineers, but I'll get you another time, don't you worry. Uh, All of them are are creative expressions of actually our God-given resources, our God-given talents, our God-given abilities in the service of others, making this world good. For God's image bearers. And what this means is that actually, in many respects, we need to widen our definition of work. Uh, We do need to shrink it down as well at some points. Uh, There are many works today that do not help human good, but hinder it. Uh, Prostitution, pornography, that's not work by this definition. Uh, They do not add to human flourishing, in fact, they take away from it. Crime, even if it pays, is not work. And so we do need to kind of, at points, kind of narrow our view of work. 
But really what we need to do is actually widen our definition of work. Because these days what we tend to do is we tend to define work as only what we are paid to do. We have a kind of economic view of work. But biblically speaking, paid work, as important as it is, is only one part of work. And actually anything that I do to promote human flourishing, anything that I do to serve others, anything that I do for the good of humanity and our world, well, that's work, uh, not just what we are paid for. Uh, So let me give you the the classic example, of course, a mum at home. Is that work? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Of course, a mum at home caring for and raising children, looking after a home, that's work. In fact, I can hardly think of many things that promote human flourishing more than the raising of children. I can't think of anything that's more about serving others. Uh, And in fact, after watching Bon raise our kids for five years now, I can hardly think of anything that's harder either. In fact, in the hierarchy of of the things that contribute to human flourishing, I think parenting, both by mothers and fathers, has got to be number one, doesn't it? It's got to be right up there, followed very closely by plumbing. Indoor indoor plumbing is just like the best thing in in the world. Uh, What about being a student? Well, being a student is preparing for work. Uh, What about looking for work? What about looking for that place where you can serve? Well, that's work as well. Uh, what about volunteering? Well, that, that's work as well, isn't it, by this definition? Uh, but even we've got to kind of think about it just a little bit more broadly than that, don't we? What about washing up at home? What about washing the dishes? And yes, that's, that's serving others. That's, that's doing good. That's, that's something that it takes, something that has to happen in our lives if we're to do anything. Uh, what about, you know, mowing the lawns or taking out the garbage or, or cooking the dinner? They're all work. They're all part of ruling over our world in the image of God as we serve one another creatively. They're all an important part of work. Now, sure, uh, in, in a modern kind of Western economy, we, we've professionalised a lot of these things. We've, we've turned lots of these things into paid work. We, we outsource a lot of these things. You know, what is daycare if it's not professionalising child-rearing? Uh, schools, too, they're just professionalising children's education, Uh, Whereas once upon a time, and in many ways it still is, the responsibility of parents. And what is a restaurant if it's not kind of professionalising cooking and professionalising cleaning up afterwards? And none of that is wrong. None of that is wrong in any sense of the world. Uh, Although we do live in a world where there's tremendous incentive for both government and corporation uh, to promote this process of professionalisation. Because you you can't tax a stay-at-home mum, but you can tax a teacher. But it's biblically ridiculous to count paid work as work and as somehow as more important than unpaid work, especially when actually they're effectively the same work. And under God, they actually, they're all work. What we really need, I think, especially as Christian people, is we need a broad definition of work in our lives. That work is anything that we do in the service of others. Now, this picture of work is one that the Scriptures will continue to flesh out. Uh, Even after Genesis chapter 3, work is and continues to be an important part of our lives, which is also why I don't think it's impossible that we will work in heaven. I don't think it's impossible that we will work in heaven. 
I know our tendency is to think otherwise. I know our, our tendency is to think of heaven as the kind of the, the ultimate holiday destination. Uh, you know, that work will be the, the furthest thing from our minds, what a, an old friend of mine likes to call the cocktails by the pool view of heaven. But in actual fact, the Bible describes heaven quite differently. Uh, heaven is a place of perfect rest, but it's also a place where rest is defined as being in the presence of God and being in a perfect relationship with God and with each other, worshipping him and even serving him. In fact, in Revelation chapter 22, it paints a picture of the new city of God, the new Jerusalem, and it still speaks of how God's servants will serve him. And so I have little problem imagining that, that perhaps we will work in heaven. But if we do, it will be work like it was in the garden. Work that delights in submitting to God joyfully alongside each other. Work that reflects the image of God that we are lovingly restored to by the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be productive. It will be fulfilling. It will be work like it was back in Genesis chapter 2. And even then, I'll caveat that all by saying, I'm not sure. I don't know. But what I do know is that God is a worker and that even right back in the beginning, even back in Genesis chapter 2, we are workers as well. And that is all called good by our gracious God. But by God's grace, we aren't only workers. Come to, to my point, third point then. We aren't only workers. We are also resters. Uh, did you notice that in Genesis 1 and 2, even before the fall... There was a rightness, there was a goodness, and there was even a need to rest after work. God rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. The rightness and the need for rest is not something that happens after sin. It's not something that happens after the fall. It's something that was there at the very beginning. It's built into our world that we are not just workers, that we are resters. We are both. In fact, God even gives us the exact proportion that we are one to the other. Uh, we are six parts worker to one part rester. Uh, we rest on the seventh day. We, 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 that, that pattern of, of work and rest is one that's, that's maintained throughout the rest of the scriptures. And I've got to say that life is better when you're able to follow that pattern. Life is better when you're able to kind of have, you know, 24 hours off in your life, where you're able to have kind of 24 hours where you do just as much as possible rest. It's one of those things that you really sort of have to try in order to know the truth of. In fact, it's worthy of a, a whole sermon on its own. But, you know, a whole day where you and your family can do as little work as possible, it's actually a wonderful thing. But it's very hard to do. Rest is very hard to do. And I've noticed over my years that rest is very hard to do for two groups in particular. Uh, one is obvious. Uh, rest is very hard for the workaholic, isn't it? For the person who has to work all the time, they need to, they've, they've got to, it's just a compulsion within them. Work is very hard for the workaholic. But I've also noticed that actually counterintuitively, work is al sorry, rest is also uh, very, very hard for the lazy person. Because the lazy person lets whatever work they need to do just fill whatever time that they have available. And so they find that actually there's always something that they're supposed to be doing. There's always something that's light or there's always something that they need to be doing now. And so the idea of just being able to stop 
and just being able to enjoy time with God, enjoy time with their family uh, without any ever having to think about work. Well, actually, ironically, the, the, the lazy person finds that very hard to do as well. Uh, if you'll forgive me from um, using myself as an example for a moment, uh, but I uh, Saturday is the day that, that Bon and I have off. That's the day where we as a family try to do as little as we can. We try and make sure that we move all of the work that we have to do on, onto the other days of the week. Uh, and that actually takes tremendous discipline. It takes tremendous discipline to get all that you need to have done, uh, done before Saturday. So for example, uh, I had to have this sermon completely written and completely ready to go. Actually, not just on, not on Friday, because I had a course on Friday. I had to have it done on Thursday, uh, Thursday night. It had to be all be finished by then. I had to just be able to pick it up this morning and deliver it to you. Uh, that takes discipline. It, t- it takes a fair bit of work to get everything done in order to actually be able to have a whole day where you can do, uh, you can you can focus on rest, and you can focus on God and on family. And yet, when you do it like that, it's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing, and it's and it's a, it's when you when you get into that pattern, and, and suddenly it breaks for some reason. You you suddenly do realize how valuable it is to have a day of rest in your life, if you're able at all to manage it. But of course, rest is, in this world now, very hard to come by, especially because we live on the other side of the fall. We live on the other side of Genesis chapter 3. Sadly, what was a joy for Adam and Eve in God's garden paradise becomes a harsh slavery outside of it. The bit about the tree, the mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is ominous. Because as wonderful as the picture of work is in Genesis chapter 2, it does not last. Adam and Eve do rebel against God and they do eat the fruit which they were commanded not to. And as we will see in a few weeks' time, sin enters into the world. And with sin comes death and with death comes sickness and decay and disintegration Everything begins to fall apart. And just as humanity rebels against God and disobeys the one who made them, so too the very ground itself, the very creation itself that is supposed to be ruled over by us now rebels against us and disobeys our command. And so come if you've got a Bible, come to Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 and hear what God says. Genesis 3 17, To Adam God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are. And to dust you will return. See, now a new word is used to describe work in Genesis chapter 3. And the word is toil. And the toil of Genesis chapter 3 is is very different from the work of Genesis chapter 2. Our work was painless, but toil is painful. Our work was, was creative, whereas toil is repetitive. Work was joyful and fulfilling, but now toil will be frustrating. Toil will be difficult. Toil will be stressful. And toil will be necessary. 
If you do not toil, God says, then you will not eat. And that sounds like a new idea, and I suspect that it is a new idea. In Genesis chapter 2, they did not need to work in order to eat. Eden was a paradise. All they needed to do was reach out their hand and there would be something delicious to eat. It was all there for them. But now they must toil to survive. And there are, of course, still moments in our world where we do experience work as work, as as wonderful, as creative, as fulfilling, as meaningful, at, at least here in the privileged and wealthy West. But for most people... In most places and at most times, what they experience is the toil of work. Work isn't a joy, it's a struggle, it's a treadmill, it's something that we cannot get off. A slavery in a world that doesn't believe that all work has dignity and meaning and significance. A world that doesn't think that work is the creative service of others to promote human flourishing. And in this world of toil... Rest is very hard to come by, very hard to come by, because here's the thing, we live in a world now where we are, by and large, defined by our work and almost exclusively by our work. And in fact, I can prove it to you straight away. When you meet someone new, what's the first question you ask? What's your name? What's the second question you ask? What do you do? And then you know exactly who they are, don't you? Then you know where they fit in the pecking order and where they compare to you in the pecking order. We're defined by what we do. I'm a physiotherapist, I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor. We define people and we define ourselves what we do. And that definition even begins before you work a day in that job in your life. Because I've noticed that university students will call themselves by the thing that they are studying, even once on day one of university, they'll start to call themselves a doctor, they'll start to call themselves a a teacher or or a lawyer. We in our world, we are defined by what we do. And if we are defined by what we do, then you have to keep doing it. Or you lose your identity. Or you lose your meaning. You lose who you are. I'll be blunt, when people have babies... Bon and I like to talk to them. We like to talk to them about the whole issue of uh, do mothers need to go back to work? And most of the time, especially when we were back in Sydney, most of the, you know, you'd get answers from them and and they, yes, they had to go back to work. And a lot of the time, especially considering how expensive Sydney is, people would say, well, we need the money. But I've noticed that's changing. I've noticed that more and more and more the answer that I'm getting was not not a financial one, but was an identity one. I need to go back to work because I am a lawyer. I need to go back to work because I am a teacher. And no one was saying to me, I need to stay at home because now I am a mum. Now, our identity is so caught up in our work, in who we are, in what we are paid to do. And so we have to toil now to prove ourselves. We have to toil now for our identity. We have to toil now for our significance. And from that sort of toil, there is just no rest. And of course, careers, the careers that we pursue, they promise all those things. They promise meaning, they promise identity, they promise security. And yet they never really deliver on those promises. They just lead to more and more toil, more and more slavery. 
And to be honest, I think that actually makes us bad workers. Because for so many people in our world, I think they're actually bad at their jobs. Because it's all about them. It's all about their identity. It's all about their reputation. It's all about their name and their significance. And it's not about what work is about. It's not about the service of others. But by God's grace, even before sin, workers, toilers, is not all that we are. We are also resters. In Genesis, we're told that God made us on day six. He made us just in time for the weekend, just in time for day seven, just in time to enjoy rest with him. In most jobs, you have to work at least for 12 months before you'll get rest. Normally, you have to earn your rest. But in Genesis, God creates rest on the seventh day and he invites us to join him. He gives us rest out of his generosity and out of his grace. Rest is a gift from God. Now the rest of the seventh day is hard to come by and our work has become toil. But another rest is coming, says God. Rest from the work of trying to survive, let alone find identity and value in a fallen world. The rest of knowing that you are loved by God and valuable to him. And the rest of even knowing that what you do, whatever it is, is valuable to humanity. And how do you get that rest? Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How sweet are those words to those of us who have known only toil. How sweet is the rest that Jesus brings. When God finished the work of creation, he did. He sat back and he said, it is finished, it is done. And he rested And when the Lord Jesus hung upon the cross for us and completed the great work of salvation given to him by his Father, he too said, it is finished, it is done, so that we could rest. And what was finished? Well, Jesus said, I have lived the life that you should have lived and I have died the death that you deserve to die. I have done everything to bring you forgiveness and to restore you to God. And when you believe in me, says Jesus, when you trust in me, then it is finished. Finally, you will get the deep rest of your soul. Finally, you will receive, you will be given meaning and identity and love that you don't have to toil for. Suddenly, you won't have to work anymore won't have to toil anymore to try and prove yourself to God. No, suddenly you will be acceptable to Him. Suddenly you will be a child of God. And it all comes as a gift from the one who worked so hard on the cross to give it to us. So you and I, we live between the wonderful beginning 
and the wonderful end when sin and judgment will be no more. We live between the rest of the seventh day and the rest of heaven. And yet because of Jesus, we can rest in him now and we can be sure that we will rest with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that even from the beginning you are so clear about who we are that like you, Lord, we are workers and yet we are not just workers, Lord. We are also resters. And so we thank you even more, Lord, that in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you give us rest. Rest from that endless, restless search for identity and meaning that so consumes our world. Rest from our enmity from you. Rest from our alienation from you, Lord, that you bring us the rest of forgiveness, the rest of redemption, the rest of being restored to you, whole and pure and blameless, one of your children. And so, Lord, we pray, For any who are here this morning, we pray that no one would leave without knowing the light and easy yoke of the Lord Jesus, the rest that they can find in him and the rest that they will enjoy with him forever when we put our trust in him who has died for us. Amen.